0: Hey, John, can you hear me okay?
1: Yep. Um, we might turn you up a tiny bit. Um, I'll do that in a sec, but I think you wanted me to stay up here. Uh, to-
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, a bit of interaction today would be good.
1: Yep. Um, and we might flip the camera around so we can see the audience. If, is everyone okay to have camera on them? Okay. We'll flip the camera around so Steve can see us.
0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Normally, it doesn't happen. We all good to go. Uh,
1: yep. Can you hear me on the second, mic, Steve.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. I'll hear make you it well. up to Steve to manage questions. Okay, we're ready to start. I think Steve.
0: Okay. Thanks, for that, John. Well, friends, last time I spoke with you we looked at the idea of studying or meditating on the Word of God. So we should be doing that. But what precisely does that involve? So we want to look at that today. And I want to share with you a model based on personal experience that hopefully can help you to read the Bible in the way that we're supposed to, and that is with care and in some detail. In particular, what are the kind of things that we're supposed to be looking out for when we read God's Word? So I've called this model the CTA model. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So context, text application, CTA. And these are the three main aspects that we need to think about when we read the Bible. And any good model of how to read the Bible must really cover these three main aspects. So context is basically the background that led to the writing of the text that we're reading. Text is actually the details, the content of the Bible passage that's in front of us, and application is the significance of the text for us today, so CTA. What we want to do today is just look at these aspects in a little bit more detail and then we'll go through a passage together and the idea is to apply this model to that passage so you get a bit of an idea of how it works. Well then, what are the things we need to consider when it comes to the context of the text? First of all, it's always good to know which book of the Bible our passage belongs to. And then we need to think about the genre of that book. But what is genre? Well, genre is just a fancy word for the type of literature that the book belongs to. And in the Bible, I think there are nine basic genres, or there can be a bit of debate about this. We've got historical narrative, we've got prophecy, law, poetry, proverbs, sermon, philosophical essay, epistle, and apocalypse. So just to go through some of these, historical narrative is just telling a story about the past. I've got the word epistle there. Epistle is just a fancy name for letters, like the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And apocalypse, we've got the book of Revelation, for example. And this is when the author records what he saw and heard normally in a vision or maybe a series of visions that have been given to him. Any questions about those biblical genres there? Hopefully it's fairly straightforward.
1: No, no questions.
0: No questions? Well, why do we need to think a little bit about genre? Well, genre, if we know the genre of a book, that can help us to know what to expect as we read. And it can also help us to understand the intention of the author. Now, keep in mind that probably all of the books of the Bible, they tend to be composite genres. So to give you an example here, when we think of the book of Leviticus, we think of law, don't we? All these series of laws. But all of the laws in Leviticus are actually placed within a historical narrative that identifies for us where and when those laws were given to the people of Israel. So even the book of Leviticus, you might say it's law, but it's got historical narrative in there and also some aspects of prophecy, too, at times. Okay, so we can get this mixture of genres as well. Uh, Next question to think about in this context section is the original readers. So who were the people that the book was originally written for? Now, in this regard, most of the time I think we don't need to be too specific because often the answer will just be, oh, it was written for Old Covenant Israelites or it was written for Christians. But sometimes, particularly when we're reading from one of the letters in the New Testament, the original readers can be identified with more precision. So, for example, Paul's letter to the Romans was written to, who do you think? It was written to the Christian community that lived in Rome at the time that Paul wrote that letter. So knowing something about the background of the original readers in a situation like that It's usually very helpful for being able to understand the content of the text that Paul has included in his letter that he's written to those people. Now, we also need to think about the main purpose of the book in which our passage occurs. So this requires thinking a little bit about the overall message of the book in question. So, for example, I think we could say that the main purpose of the book of Leviticus was to help Old Covenant Israelites know how to be holy and how they could approach God. That's just one example. And finally, when it comes to context, it's always important to think about the location of the book in salvation history. So what period of history is the book talking about? And I've got a diagram for you here. So is the content of the book to be located Before the Old Covenant Age, in the Patriarchal Age, or maybe even the time of Adam, is it to be located during the Old Covenant Age, at the time of transition from the Old Covenant Age to the New Covenant Age, or during the New Covenant Age? So the location of the content of the book in history will be important for how we apply the content of the passage to us Christians today. Okay, so that's just an overview there of. Context,
1: any questions? Um, I have a quick one, Steve. Yep. Um. So the, knowing the context, like if you've studied the book before, you know the context. But, yeah,
0: that helps definitely, yes.
1: <laughs> but if um people are, say, reading one-to-one with a friend for the first mm. time and they don't know any context about it, like mm. do, you, do you have to know context to understand the book or can you – just no, you don't,
0: you don't need to. It's just um, a process, really. You've got to start somewhere. But that's the reason why we're encouraged to read the Bible and to keep on reading it. You know, you don't just read the Book of Lituvius once in your life. Well, Some people might. But um, the idea is that we kind of cycle through the Bible. And as we do that, our understanding of the context grows. And as our understanding of the context grows, the ability for us to be able to place whatever passage we've got within the proper context obviously improves over time good right. question
1: so you don't have to have all those questions
0: answered before you start. No no it's a process it's a process particularly when it comes to context yes okay well let's move on to the next section that's text so text actually has two parts so first part's actually to just delineate the passage And the second part is to exegete the passage. But what does that mean, to delineate and to exegete? Well, let's talk about delineation first of all. To delineate the passage, it basically just means to identify the boundaries of the passage that we're looking at. Now, in this regard, often we can just follow the headings that are there in the Bible. You know how we've got these little headings that breaks the text of the Bible up into little sections. They're often very good but sometimes they might not be accurate and at least sometimes there can be different opinions about where a particular passage might begin or where it might end but we've got some principles that we can apply and so the basic principles are you know verses that are part of a common structure or a particular episode like a little story they usually form a passage together We also get verses that are in close proximity. If they have similar themes, then they tend to form a passage as well. And often we've got transitional points. So there might be where one passage moves into another passage. We've got that marked in the text somehow by some kind of transitional language. It can be like a concluding idea or an introducing idea there's a point of transition right there so sometimes you've got language like now or after this after these things because of this or therefore okay so keep in mind we really want to be looking at a full passage together and not like a half a passage and mixing it up with a passage that comes following and so on so that's delineating the passage basically just working out where the boundaries of the passage are so any questions about that? It's normally fairly straightforward, but there can sometimes be a little bit of debate about, in particular, where we might have points of transition. Anyway, the second part of looking at text is probably really the meat. And you can see there are lots of questions there. And this is exegeting the passage. What do we mean by that? Well, to exegete basically means to bring out the meaning of something. So, by exegeting the passage, what we want to do, we want to discover the meaning of the text in terms of what the author intended for us to understand. And so, this is the key part of what we need to do when reading and understanding the Bible. And I've put the kind of steps that we need to go through, I've put them in question form here. So, let's just go through these briefly. So first of all, are there any words, phrases or ideas in the text that might require research in order to understand? Okay, so there might be things in there that you are not sure about. So this concept of the son of man, what does that mean? Well, you might need to do a bit of research. So things you can do include searching for similar words or ideas elsewhere in the Bible. Just use your search function if you've got the Bible electronically. Or perhaps we can... Consult a Bible dictionary or a commentary on the text if it's something that we really need to know, but we're not sure about. And then we should consider things like, okay, the start of the passage. Is it emphasizing anything? The end of the passage. Is it emphasizing anything? Is there something in the conclusion that we need to pay attention to? What about the overall structure of the passage? Is it emphasizing anything? What about repetition? Is that emphasizing anything? Uh, Do we get any unexpected details or sort of like extra information that didn't really need to be there but the author has given it to us? Now, these unexpected details, they're great for getting insight into what the author wants us to understand. And then we need to consider themes. So are there any key ideas or themes of the book that appear in the passage? And also, what about the Bible as a whole? Are there any key ideas or themes from the Bible that we can see there in the passage? And then the final step in the process of exegeting the text, it's using the details of the content of the text that we've sort of ascertained through asking all of those questions. And then what we want to do is try to think about, okay, what's the main idea that's being expressed in the passage? And this is a very important point because so often people They read a passage in the Bible, but they don't really think about, okay, what's the main idea that's being expressed here? You know, often we just take a detail here, a detail there and kind of run with it, but we really need to ask the question, okay, what's the big idea? What's the main idea that the author wants us to take away from this passage? Okay, so that's just a summary of the kind of questions that we need to consider when we're seeking to understand the content of the text. So any brief questions at all about uh, what we have there or any comments, anything that you think might be missing?
1: Yeah, we've got one from Vanessa.
0: Yeah.
2: How do you know if you've found the right meaning? Because, like, say some people or some Christians or churches, they take, you know, like David Stone's and they kind of put, like, things to the stuff each rock kind of thing but it's like do we, how do we know is that the right way of reading that passage you know David and Goliath
0: yeah okay so it's it's a bit of a tricky question right because often one person can look at a text another person look at the text and they often take different things out of it and Often those things can be legitimate but the problem is, and this sometimes happens with sermons too, you, like I might be listening to a sermon and the, the preacher takes a little detail out of a text and that might be okay but in a way, maybe the preacher hasn't really looked at what's the main idea. So, The issue is it's not so much what detail you pull out, but if you're pulling out a detail which you then take out of context and apply, that's where there are problems, okay? So the idea of understanding the context and also the idea about the themes of the book and the themes of the Bible as a whole, okay, when we read a particular passage, we have to see it in context. So we need to know a little bit about the background. That helps to give us a bit of guidance as to what we're seeing and how we'll apply it and the same thing with looking at the themes of the book the themes of the bible that's a kind of control that helps guide us in what we should be seeing in the text does that make sense
1: yep yep nods yes um i might just add to that steve as well um you don't always have to get the main idea uh, tell me if you agree or not because um like say you might be reading the Bible with your friend and something's happening in your life, and the passage isn't really talking about that, but it's got a little bit to say it's a sub-idea or something. Yeah, It's okay for you to like kind of come away with that without, um, even though it's not the main idea. Would you agree with that? or?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Like we will look in the application section. I would say ideally what we're wanting to do is to discover the main idea, but we're also looking out for subordinate ideas as well. And often it's these subordinate ideas that might jump out and hit someone, and it might be relevant to them in their life at that moment in time. So that's what they run with, okay? But to be more precise, we actually want to get to the main idea, really. That's the ideal. It's a bit like when you're talking to someone, right? They might say something and you hear it, but it's only a minor detail. The main idea of what they wanted to communicate, if that doesn't come across in a way, there's been a bit of a miscommunication at that point, okay? So the ideal is we think about the main idea as well as seeing what are the subordinate ideas, okay? But I agree with what John said there. Sometimes it can be the subordinate ideas that hit people with greater impact at certain moments of times in their life.
1: Yeah. What a question. Right? I have a follow-up question. Yep. Do you think it's possible for a passage to either have multiple main
0: ideas, so more than one main idea, mm. or um, maybe I'm thinking more like the narrative kind of genre, like no main idea, but the, the main idea is just telling you what happened? I would say most of the time the author has some kind of agenda, right? So there's going to be some main idea there. I think it is possible perhaps to have multiple main ideas that may happen, but most of the time I would say it's probably a main idea and it may be a compound main idea. We'll see that a little bit today as we look at the passage from Matthew's Gospel, and there can be a debate, okay, do we have one main idea with three subordinate ideas or is it really just one composite main idea that has kind of four parts to it, okay? So, yeah, but... At least thinking about this issue of what's the big idea, what's the main idea here, is an important question to ask. Oh, oh. potato. Uh, potato. Can be
2: deconstructed without the author and taste, or does it need to have the structure in order to understand it?
0: Sorry, you dropped out a little bit there. John, can you just repeat uh, the question? Uh, can, oh, can you hear me now?
2: Um, Yeah. Can the idea be deconstructed without the author, without consideration of the author, or does the idea need the structure behind it and the author and the context is always key to understanding that idea?
0: Yeah, you really need to think about because this is actually, when we're looking at the Bible, communication from God, right? So God has a particular intention as he's communicating this. That's mediated through the author of whatever book it is. So, yeah, I would say you do have to think about what's the intention of the author, but you can really only know that through the details of the text that are there read in context, okay? So the only data we really have is what's on the page, but we read what's on the page in the light of the total context of the Bible itself while also thinking about, you know, who was this who this this information that we have, this book or this passage, who was it directed to originally as well? Okay.
1: The, um, maybe to add to that for Toto. Um, I guess like it's kind of the idea of like, is there like, where does the truth lie? Cause I guess like postmodern philosophy or whatever would say truth lies in the, the recipient, the reader, right? You make up the truth based on your own context or whatever. And I guess when we're reading the Bible, we would say that there's an objective truth. And we're meant to be discovering the objective truth as opposed to we're constructing the truth ourselves, which is kind of like the popular, um, it's popular in academic circles these days to be like, oh, you know, like everything's context driven and you just kind of make up your own own circumstances. Um, Is that that maybe where you're getting to the question, Toby?
2: No, more so just like the different ways of reading text. Right. Whether for a okay. structural perspective or like a deconstructive perspective. But that's really postmodern
0: modern kind of sure. dynamic way of looking at things.
1: Yep. Ignore what I said then.
0: Maybe <laughs> <laughs> no, what John said was good there. It's actually communication from God, right? So it's not what we want to understand. We really want to understand, okay, what was the author intending here in the context? But to do that, we need to pay attention to the details of the text, okay? So basically a careful reading of the text, paying attention to how the story is told. Or what information is given to us and trying to, from that, come to certain conclusions. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the application section. So under application, we're basically just thinking about the significance of the text for us today. So, and this is where we come in. What's the main idea of the passage? There should always be some main idea. And there might also be some subordinate ideas. So it's interesting thinking about how does the main idea link in with any subordinate ideas that are there. And very important is the next point, and that is, if the passage wasn't originally directed to a New Covenant audience, it requires a New Covenant update before it's applied to us today. So keep in mind that not everything that God told Old Covenant Israel to do, or even what God told the apostles to do in the new covenant, right? Not everything that God said to particular individuals will necessarily apply directly to us today, okay? So keep that in mind. That means that sometimes we'll have to think about what would be the new covenant equivalent of what we're looking at, what would that be for us today? So, for example, in the book of Leviticus, the idea of the day of atonement. And the laws regarding the Day of Atonement, we can't apply that directly to us today. But what is the New Covenant equivalent of that? Obviously, it links in, doesn't it, with the sacrifice of Jesus and looking to Jesus as our sacrifice before God. So you see what we've done there. We've done, in effect, a New Covenant update. What's the equivalent of that back for Old Covenant Israel for us today? We need to think about that. And finally, If the teaching of the passage isn't directly relevant to us today, and that can sometimes happen, even after giving a new covenant update, that can also sometimes happen, then we have to ask how the principles expressed in the passage would apply to us as Christians today, okay? So this application section is very interesting because you can apply things in different ways, and often in sermons you'll see this. One preacher can apply it in a different way to another preacher, say. But have you got any brief questions about this section of application?
1: No, it doesn't look like it.
0: Okay. No questions? All right, we'll move on then. So that's just a quick rundown for you of the CTA model, context, text, application. And you can see from that that perhaps reading and understanding the Bible is a fairly complex process when you look at it overall. It's because there's lots of elements to consider, but it's also doable. And the key is just to pay attention to the text and ask the kinds of questions that we've gone through in that model today. And as we do that, we're able to understand God's word better and we will grow in our ability to read the Bible in a way that honors God. But really what we want to do today is to apply this model to a particular text. So let's do that. And we'll see what we get from the process. Okay, so the passage that we'll be looking at today is a kind of experiment. It's the genealogy at the start of Matthew's Gospel. It looks boring, doesn't it? And I know some of you have read this already as part of your Bible reading series. And I also noticed some good discussion online about this particular passage. So that's why I've chosen it. And we'll see what we can get out of this process today. I'd like to invite Deanna, I think it is, to read this passage out for us now. And as she does that, I want you to think about what Matthew might be emphasising, particularly through any unexpected or perhaps even strange details, and also think about what's the structure of the genealogy that he's given to us. Anyway, over to Deanna for the Bible reading.
2: This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Simon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother who had uh, whose mother had been Uriah's wife Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Joshat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the mother of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of of Jechiniah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, was the father of Jezziah, Shethil the father of Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elihakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Nathan, Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus, were 14 generation is from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah.
0: Okay, thanks, for Deanna. All right, so let's just apply this model, the CTA model, to this particular text. So we start off with context. So basically I'll just ask the questions and I want you to give me most of the answers, okay? So... What book is the passage in? Yep,
1: Matthew, I got it.
0: Yep, pretty straightforward. What about the genre of the book?
1: Narrative, we have.
0: Yeah, it's narrative. It's telling stories, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically historical narrative, but a historical narrative that focuses on the life and teaching of Jesus, what do we normally call that? It's given its own category normally.
1: Yeah, gospel.
0: Gospel, Gospel, that's right, yeah. We normally call it a gospel, but it's basically just a historical narrative of Jesus' life, okay? Now, what would you say is the main purpose of the book of Matthew, just from your general knowledge of the book?
1: Uh, Brendan said let people know about the life of Jesus.
0: Yeah, okay, that's pretty straightforward. And most of the gospels are actually like this. The main purpose of them is to present the key events in Jesus' life and teaching, but with a view to showing people that Jesus is the Christ, right? So they normally have an agenda like that. That's to present Jesus as being the Messiah, okay? Now, where is the book located in Salvation History? This is an interesting one, this one. Is it Old Covenant, New Covenant, or what would you say? New Sorry, what was that? Uh, new Covenant. New covenant. Is it New Covenant? When did oh, the new covenant start?
1: Blowing my mind, Steve. <laughs> that's a good that's a good point. That's a good point.
0: When did the new covenant actually start? What did people say about that?
1: When Jesus died.
0: Yeah, remember the cross is the transition point from the old covenant to the new. Okay, oh, the cross me. symbolizes the end of the old covenant, and the resurrection is the start of the new covenant. So what would you say? This book is located in Oh, testimony. Like,
1: yeah, a bit of both, I guess. Like at, right at the yeah, end of the new, and then it's like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's right at the transition point. Okay. So it's it's right at the end of the old covenant for the most part, but as it's transitioning into the new. And that's significant to keep in mind because there might be some things that Jesus says that are directed more to the old covenant situation than the coming new covenant. You know, there, there can sometimes be that. There can be Jewish elements, right? That. He might be because he's interacting with a Jewish audience that might not necessarily apply directly to us today. So just keep that in mind. Okay. All straightforward there? That's that's yep. really just context there, you know. So it's it's fairly straightforward, hopefully. All right, then well, let's move now to the text. And this is where it gets more interesting, maybe we can say a bit more detail. In terms of delineating the passage, I don't think there's a big issue here. The only real issue is where the genealogy ends. And I think we can say that verse 18 is a transition point, okay, because verse 18 introduces something. It starts off with the words, the birth of Jesus Christ was like this, and then we get the details about how Jesus was born. So you can see verse 18 is moving on to a new section. So that means that verses 1 to 17, they fit well together as a unit it's the genealogy introducing jesus to us at the start of matthew's gospel okay all right then well what about the details of the text itself let's go through the process so the first thing to think about is are there any words phrases or ideas that might require research in order to understand okay what do you think about this one On the passage, you can go to the next slide here.
1: Uh, Brendan said all the people.
0: (laughs) All the people, yeah. You might want to do some research on these individuals. Some of them, though, we might not be able to find much about. Yeah, but think about what are the, we don't really need necessarily to know, okay, who was Zadok, who was Abiyud, right? But who are or what are some key ideas that are mentioned in the text that we need to find out more about? And the only ones I've got there is, for example, Christ. Are you sure what this word Christ means? Okay, you might need to do a little bit of research about that. Uh, The only other thing that I think might require a bit of research really is exile. Okay, it mentions the exile to Babylon, doesn't it? Maybe you don't know much about the exile to Babylon, so you might want to find out a little bit more about that. And, of course, there are lots of individuals there you might be interested in. Maybe you want to find out who Zadok is, but you don't necessarily need to know who Zadok was in order to get the main idea of, of this particular passage. Okay. All right. Uh, question from Brent. Yeah, sorry, John. Uh,
1: just a question from Bren.
0: I understand mm. what you're saying, but like, I'm coming to the
1: passage the, with the lens of like, I'm just reading the Bible for the first time, so I don't know anything how would you know that you don't need to look at every everyone? Because, like, <laughs> if you're reading a kind of book, I guess you would, the natural inclination would be like, I need to know who these people are. They're talking about them.
0: So how- yeah, true. Well, this is where it's a process, isn't it? It's a process. It's a bit of trial and error, really. You've got to start somewhere, like I said before. And so some people coming at this text for the first time, they might be overwhelmed say, so who are these people? Okay. But partly, hopefully, they would be maybe part of a Christian community or have a Christian friend say it might be our job to help them to say, okay, yeah, there are lots of people here, lots of details, but what are we meant to focus on? And, in fact, the author will give us little clues as to what we're meant to focus on as we particularly reach the end of the passage, all right? So, yeah, it's a bit of trial and error really, hit and miss. It's a journey. And so sometimes it takes time to be able to work out, okay, what are we meant to be focusing in on here? Okay. I would say to that person, just start reading, start reading, keep reading. And as you do that, and as you come back and read it again, you'll understand more.
1: Yeah. I think um, just to emphasize that last
0: point that you made, Steve, like
1: you don't have to get it all the first read through, like you might get 1% on your first three through or 10%. Yeah. Yep. Fine.
0: As long as you're learning, something about God through the text. But over time, what we want to do is to become more precise. All right, next question. Does the start of the passage emphasize anything, right? If you're paying attention, you will see what the author is emphasizing. What do you think on this one? Okay, you can move on to the next slide.
1: Uh, Jesus is the answer. It's emphasizing.
0: (laughs) Well, it does mention Jesus, right? So that's important. I didn't have that highlighted here, but maybe we should have that highlighted in red or something, because yeah, it's something about Jesus, isn't it? But what else do we get at the start? We get Jesus. We also get this concept of the Christ, plus two other little bits of information. Yeah, David. Yeah. Yeah. Genealogy. This Jesus is the son of David the son of Abraham. In a sense, why has the author put that information in here, that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham? Maybe there's something significant about those two people. Hmm. That's the kind of question we need to pay attention to, okay? So just keep in mind there's something about David, there's something about Abraham relating to Jesus, okay? Next thing to think about, and this is the next slide here, yep, does the end of the passage emphasize anything so look at the conclusion does the conclusion say anything that we're meant to be paying attention to all right so move on to the next slide and we'll look at the conclusion and I think this is a very interesting one this one notice how the author points out a pattern that exists in the genealogy you know we could read through this and just say oh there's heaps of names there we can count how many names there are but we might not see the pattern. And the author is actually drawing our attention to the pattern. So what's the pattern? Fourteen. Fourteen. There's a fourteen pattern, isn't there? How many fourteens do we have? Three. Three. Three lots of fourteen. Okay. Why is the author pointing this out to us? Notice how fourteen is a nice number biblically, isn't it? Fourteen is made up of how many lots of seven? And seven a significant number in the Bible.
1: Two, seventh.
0: Two sevenths. Two make 14. Okay, so there's something significant about the structure of this genealogy, and we get that from the conclusion, all right? But this leads us nicely to our next question, that is, does the overall structure of the passage emphasize anything, okay? The author's already given us a hint if we've gotten to the conclusion, right, and we look back on it, we see there's this three times 14 pattern. That's the structure of the genealogy. So it must be, would you think it's emphasising something here? What do you think? right, I just highlighted for you there the first set of 14, the next set of 14, and the third set of 14. Now, the author wouldn't point out the pattern of 14 generations if it wasn't significant in some way. But what do you think is significant about this pattern? Any ideas?
1: Brendan's saying something important happens after 14 generations.
0: Okay, good good point. So we start off with Abraham, and then after 14 generations we get to whom? David. Saul. We get to King David, right? So you've got Abraham, King David. Notice he's already said that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, okay? So we're getting some repetition here. What about the next set of 14? Where does that lead us?
1: Exile. The exile. It leads
0: us to the exile to Babylon, okay? That's significant. So we've got Abraham, David, the exile to Babylon, and then finally we get to Jesus. We get to Jesus, okay? So what's the connection? There's obviously the author's drawing a connection from Jesus back to Abraham, King David, and the exile to Babylon. What do you think is the connection between these things? He's wanting us to see a connection. What links these things together? Abraham, David, exile of Babylon, and Jesus. They're Did God promise Abraham something? Yeah. Did God promise David something? So Anyone remember? Something about Israel.
1: They're all men of God. We've got, we're getting a few um, answers. Blessings.
0: Yeah, blessing. Think about what God promised Abraham. So think about Genesis 12 and following passages, but Genesis 12 in particular. God promised that Abraham's seed, in other words, Abraham's descendants would be numerous and that they'd possess the promised land. That's the key promise that God gave to Abraham. Okay. What about what God promised David? This is in 2 Samuel 7. What was the big promise that God gave to David.
1: Yeah, someone Someone will be descended from him.
0: Yeah, yep. and, and that person will what? Yeah, be the king. Yeah. The king over Israel. For how long? And significantly?
1: Forever, forever.
0: Forever, yeah. So God promised David that one of his seed, in other words, one of his descendants would rule as king over God's people eternally. All right? So you can see. Key promises given to Abraham, key promise given to David. Now, think about how does the exile relate to those promises of land and kingdom?
1: Yeah, it's a loss. Um, It's the loss
0: of that, isn't it? It's the reversal of that, right? Israel had land, they were part of a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And what happened with exile? It symbolizes the loss. So it's the reverse, it's the curse. right, so really what we have linking these things together, we've got blessing to Abraham, blessing to David, at least the promises of those things, and then we get the reversal of that by the curse of the covenant with Israel being exiled from the land, and then we get to Jesus. Okay, so you can see the author is wanting us to make a connection between these things. The exile represents the loss of land and kingdom. So we've got blessing, blessing, curse, And then we get to Jesus. In what way is Jesus connected then with the promises of blessing and the reality of curse? Anyone want to have a a brief stab at this one initially?
1: Can you repeat the question, Steve?
0: Okay, so we've got the promise of blessing to Abraham, promise of blessing to David. That's all lost through the exile. How is Jesus connected with those things? Any thoughts? Um,
1: yep. So, Brendan's saying it kind of brings up the question will Jesus be a blessing or a curse?
0: Possibly, possibly. But remember, he's been introduced as being the Christ who is the Messiah. He's son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, this idea of seed it's the seed who's going to bring about land for God's people and eternal kingdom for God's people. So you can see where it's heading here, I think. Question is, is Jesus the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham and David, the one who reverses the curse? Anyway, let's tease this out as we go through, okay? But we're meant to see a connection. And by asking these questions where we know that there's some answer out there, we might not know the answer, but at least we're asking the right type of questions. See how it works? All right, let's move to the next question. What about repetition? Is anything em- emphasised through repetition in this passage? What do you think? Is there, is there repetition in this
1: passage?
0: Can move to the next slide? Science what do you think i've highlighted all the parts that kind of repeat there's heaps of repetition all right we get the word christ mentioned three times we get the word david mentioned five times we get abraham mentioned three times obviously the phrase the father of is repeated many many times because it's a genealogy but significantly, we also have the phrase, instead of the father of, we've got what's the kind of opposite to that? We have the phrase whose mother was. How many times?
1: Oh, oh sorry. I was just listening.
0: I didn't. I forgot you can't hear, Steve. Um, four times, four times. Four times. Yeah, four times. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, why have we got mothers, you know, four, at least four mothers appearing and then you get Mary at the end as well. What about the phrase the exile to Babylon? That occurs three times along with one mention of the exile. So you could say four times altogether the exile to Babylon is mentioned. And obviously we get the number 14 being mentioned three times. So there's something significant about, you know, when we see repetition like this, we're meant to be thinking, okay, what's being emphasised here? And I think we could say, well, the idea of Christ, the idea of David, the idea of Abraham, the idea of exile, and also fourteen. And significantly, also, I wouldn't really say, you know, father of, because that's expected in the genealogy, but you've got four times whose mother was. Think about that. There might be something significant there. All right. Okay, what about our next question? And this is interesting, too. I, I love this question, probably out of all of the questions we've got. This is probably the most interesting one, I reckon. Are there any unexpected or extraneous details given by the author, okay? What I mean by this is any little details that in a way don't really need to be there, but the author's slotted them in. Why are they there, okay? Can you see any unexpected details? Any things that you can think, well, they're extraneous in the sense of they don't necessarily need to be there, right? Like what we looked at when we looked at is the start emphasizing anything, Right, this detail about being the son of David, the son of Abraham. The author doesn't really need to say that. He could just say a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, full stop. But he's added in the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? All right, he's done that for a reason. He's wanting us to see Jesus' connection somehow with David and Abraham. He's signaling that. What about the things that are highlighted in Yellow on the screen what do we have there the women the women yeah the women the mothers only four mothers really are listed the focus is on the fathers but why these four women introduced it's it's a detail that strictly speaking it doesn't need to be there right like he hasn't worried about the mothers for all of the other people why just these four What we'll find is each of these women have something surprising about them. Who was Tamar? Anyone remember?
1: The daughter-in-law of Judah?
0: Yeah, that's right. So Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. The story is when her husband died, she didn't have any children, and so basically to summarize the story, so in the end, Instead of Judah arranging for her to marry Judah's youngest son, she had to pretend to be a prostitute and sleep with Judah, her father-in-law, in in order to fall pregnant and to continue the family line. So it's not a nice story, because in Genesis 38. So Tamar was a kind of pseudo-prostitute who committed a form of incest. Why include this? In Jesus's family tree. Like it's the kind of thing you'd think we'd want to skip over, right? And not mention. But it's mentioned. Let's look at Rahab and let's see if we see a bit of a pattern. Who was Rahab?
1: She was a prostitute, Lauren says.
0: Yeah, she was a real prostitute, right? It was her way of life for a time. So this is going back to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 6. Rahab was a prostitute, and on top of that, she was a Gentile. So she's got two things going against her. Why include this detail in Jesus' family tree? What do you think the author might be hinting at here? What about Ruth? We know Ruth, don't we? Ruth ended up marrying Boaz, right? But where does she come from? Moabite. Moabite, yeah? Okay, so she was a foreigner. So Ruth is a foreigner. Rahab was a foreigner too. How about the next woman? What's surprising about this one? Uriah's wife. Uh, Notice how. What were you going to say, John?
1: Uh, Alex said there's no name given
0: to her. Exactly, exactly. Good point, good observation. Why is she not named? She's just simply described as Uriah's wife. Now, do you remember the story from Second Samuel 11? What's the story? Anyone remember?
1: Yeah, David, um, Brendan said David had Uriah's. Uh, Uriah killed so he can steal his wife.
0: So he stole his wife. Yeah, well, actually, it's sort of like that. So this detail, it does remind us that David, King David, of all people, he stole Uriah's wife. So the woman's name is Bathsheba. <laughs> so she's not named, but the fact that she's not named is a big hint that the author wants us to see the sin that was involved in this particular incident okay this is a case of idol sorry adultery and after David got Bathsheba pregnant so there's adultery there he tried to cover up the fact and when that failed he basically organized things so that Uriah would die in battle okay so this incident was a great moral failure on the part of David. We've got adultery. We've got murder. So the question is, why would the author put something like this in Jesus' genealogy? And he's, 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 by the fact he's calling it Uriah's wife, you know, he's saying, see, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong that happened. Do you see the pattern between all these women here? What would you say the pattern is? What have we got overall?
1: Uh, Scandal, Alex says. Scandal,
0: yeah, exactly. We've got sin and we've got foreignness. So overall, these women, they're like skeletons in the closet that ordinarily should be kept in the closet, but the author is drawing our attention to them. So the question is why? And so the idea is here, we're meant to think about, okay, what do these women have in common? So they have negativity. They have scandal. We've got here a list of negatives. We've got prostitution. We've got adultery. We've got murder. And we've got being a Gentile. It seems to be a hint by the author that even sinners and Gentiles have a place in the family of Jesus, right? Otherwise, why is he telling us this? we meant to conclude something from these four women who have been mentioned. Okay, let's go on to the next question. question. Do any key... Yeah, sorry, question?
1: What about Mary?
0: Yeah, Mary is mentioned, but she's mentioned right at the end. Okay, and in a way you could say, well, is there a bit of scandal with Mary too? In some ways, yes. And what do we get? We get the story of how Joseph... His fiance ends up being pregnant, and what he wants to do about that. Okay. So, even then, there's a bit of scandal too, isn't there, with Mary? So, you could conclude well, God does things in strange ways, perhaps. Yes. But I think also there's this hinting at the fact that the unclean, sinners, foreigners, you know, what Jesus came into the world to do, it, it, it has some benefits for people like that. They can be included within. They're in the scope of what God has come to do in Jesus. Okay, there's a little hint there in what the author is presenting. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next section. So any key ideas or themes of the book that appear in this passage, what would you say? This presupposes some knowledge, doesn't it, of the overall message of of Matthew right key ideas that occur elsewhere in the book of Matthew well the concept of the Christ the word Christ occurs 15 times in the book of Matthew and surprisingly David David is mentioned 16 times so I would say this concept of Christ this concept of David or Jesus being the son of David that links in with some themes that we see repeated elsewhere in the book of Matthew okay What about next section, key ideas or themes of the Bible that might appear in the passage? So once again, this concept of the Christ. Remember how the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to when the Messiah comes. So the theme of Messiah, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. These are key concepts from the Old Testament. And also this idea of the exile. A lot of the Old Testament, think about the Old Testament prophets, they're either leading up to the exile or talking about the exile or looking back on the exile. All right, so this passage links in, you can see there, with some key Old Testament themes. All right, then let's move on to what I think is probably the most important question to ask when we're looking at the text, and that is, given all of the above, given everything that we've looked at, can we discover something about what the main idea expressed in the passage might be? And so basically to do this, what we need to do, we need to think about all of what's been emphasised previously, everything that we've seen, and try and synthesise that into an overall message. Okay, So just going through what we've seen, we've seen in this passage, we've seen the idea of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, connecting in with the exiled to Babylon. We've also got the four women who represent sin and foreignness, being a Gentile. So what do you think? Trying to put all of this together, any way we can do this, do you think?
1: Um, Steve, just uh, before that question's answered, just keeping an eye on time. We'll probably have to wrap up soon-ish.
0: Yep, we're getting close to the end
1: like the climax i don't want to interrupt you no that's fine that's
0: fine all right well basically this is what i think it leads to so i would say and this is next slide the message of the genealogy is jesus is the christ the one who fulfills the promises of blessing to david and abraham okay because the genealogy shows us this that jesus is the seed of both david and abraham and jesus is also the one who reverses the curse of the exile And the wonderful thing is, as hinted at through the four women, Jesus brings in blessing and reverses the curse for everyone, regardless of background. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you're a sinner or a foreigner, there's a place in Jesus' kingdom for everyone, regardless of their background. So I think overall I would say, okay, that's the main idea of the genealogy, and it's actually a wonderful message that's communicated in an interesting way. Okay, so this brings us to our final step. So not long to go now, and that's the application section. So the only issue here is, okay, is that one main idea, everything that I said there, or do we have one main idea with three subordinate ideas? And you can argue either way, but the main part of the main idea, if you want to say, is really the idea that Jesus is the Christ. But you can see how he's linking with Abraham and David. He's the one who fulfills the promises of blessing to them. He reverses the curse of the exile for everyone. Okay, so basically what I've tried to do is just integrate them into just one big idea there, but you could split them off with some being subordinate ideas. So the next part is very important. Is there any sense in which this is not directed to New Covenant readers? Do we need to apply a New Covenant update here, do you think, before applying the main idea or any subordinate ideas?
1: Saying no, Steve.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. That's a very new covenant message. In fact, it's the core message of the gospel. So uh, final thing is, is there anything that's not relevant here that we need to take the principles of to apply? And obviously I would say, well, this message is still relevant and that is the key message that we're meant to take away from the genealogy. Okay, so thank you for putting up with me through this. Sorry, it took a little bit of time but hopefully you found the discussion helpful and you've got some idea of what we're meant to be doing. Okay, so our final slide is basically just to encourage you to apply something like the CTA model to ask questions of the context and the text and think about the application. The more that we ask these kinds of questions and think about the answers, the more considerate will be our reading of God's word. So make sure you use a process, something like what we've gone through today, to help direct you as you seek to meditate on God's word. Okay, so thanks for today. And any further questions we can follow up later on, but maybe just to get John to pray to finish off with.
1: Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, You squeezed a ton of stuff into a very short time, so you did really well keeping it short as you did. Um, Yeah, let, let me pray. Um, Lord, thanks for, um, Steve's teaching for us and all of his wisdom that he's, uh, passing on to us. Help us to be understanders of your word. Amen.